Welcome to the Sourdough Podcast. We are your hosts, Jay and Ashley. We're coming to you from our log cabin studio, formerly known as our living room, on our farm here in western Montana. All right, let's start today's episode with a few updates um, in regards to some information we shared on our last podcast. Uh, so we want to touch base on a couple things. One, to start off, we got our soil sample results back from the lab. And on last week's episode, we had been talking quite a bit about soil sampling and the benefits of it. So we're excited to share just briefly a summary of what we found in our results versus what we were dealing with last year. Yeah, so <clears throat> let me just pull these soil tests up here. Uh, okay, so last year, there's a couple of things. So there's some positives that we see that we've improved upon our soil. And then there's some things that are a little worrisome um, for me, at least right now, that I want to address and, and do more research on. And hopefully we can then um, talk a bit more about um, salinity in soil and how it can cause uh, various issues with plants. But one of the positives, to start off with the positives, is that our, our organic matter in our first greenhouse has increased from 3.9 to 5.3 percent, which is actually a pretty marked increase in soil organic matter, which is a positive. Our humic acid applications certainly are helping, as well as just the general uh, management of that, that soil. Um, our phosphorus levels, which were quite high uh, last year, have actually come back down, which is another positive. Um, our potassium levels, which were very high, uh, like very high in our soils last year, have come down about, about 5%. Um, and so it's still very high, but it's on the right trajectory. So we're very excited about that. And uh, one of the things that, though, is a problem is our calcium to magnesium ratio, which is what we were talking about in the last podcast. In our heavy clay soils, we want generally want that to be upwards towards uh, 10 to 1 uh, between calcium and the magnesium ions. And so right now, we're still around 7.5, and the magnesium uh, parts per million has actually gone up, which is a problem. Uh, our calcium has gone up, but we really want to try and keep those magnesium levels uh, either where they are while we increase the calcium levels or try and decrease the magnesium levels. And uh, our soil pH is still alkaline, which is a problem. We Again, we were in the last podcast, we are talking about how we want to be targeting 6.5 and, you know, so slightly acidic on the pH scale. And then one big problem is we found out that we have really high uh, sodium in our, our soils, and, that, and that's a problem uh, for many reasons. One of the issues with sodium that I was doing some research last week on was that it can actually inhibit the uptake of water into plants. If there's really high sodium, it just messes up with the, the plant's ability to take up water. So that could actually be contributing to the wilting mm -hmm. that we've been seeing. It might, who knows, maybe it's not actually potassium. Maybe it's actually the excess sodium that's in in our soil that's causing that inhibition or that um, inhibiting the uptake of water mm -hmm. into the plants causing that, that wilting. So we're going to do a little more research. We might, uh, we'll probably take, of course, tissue uh, analysis here in the next couple of weeks and we'll, and we'll see what the concentrations of uh, sodium is in our plants. Um, so as far as our, those were the primarily the macronutrients. Uh, and as far as the, the micronutrients go, our, our zinc and manganese, which are two very important elements, 
uh, they've actually gone down a bit, uh, not to alarming levels, but they are in the low end of the scale. And uh, so we'll probably uh, apply those in the form of foliar spray to our crops to make sure that, that they are getting those really important micronutrients. Our boron went up, which is great. I'm really excited to see because we were at 0.7 parts per million before. And now we're right in the middle of the range between one and three parts per million for boron. Uh, our sulfur went down too, which is actually really, really exciting. It shows that uh, we have broken that impenetrable, impenetrable layer of uh, compaction in our soil. We've been using the broad fork, and if if you don't, if anyone out there doesn't know what that is, just look it up online. It's basically a a big. What would you? What would you? How would you describe the broad fork? I would say it's a rather broad pork <laughs> <laughs> thanks honey it's it's no it's uh like it has multiple <laughs> multiple prongs at the bottom it's large enough i mean i'm only five two but it has a handle on each side so you can basically like jump onto the base of it and kind of wiggle it around to have it penetrate the soil yeah. uh, and so each of those teeth that are fork like go down into the soil uh, but instead of actually turning the soil over, you're simply cracking it and creating uh, some aeration in it. Exactly. And that's a really important aspect. Remember, we need oxygen in our soils for both microbial life, but also for the interaction with plants. Mm-hmm. And so getting, especially in um, really tight soils that we have, because of our calcium to magnesium ratio, it's not separating, it's not... Uh, I think the term is called flocculation. It's not separating those clay colloid particles away to let a gas exchange happen. And that's a real problem for plants and the soil life. And so we've been basically cracking the soil and breaking that that uh, that compaction layer. And that actually allows both sodium and sulfur to drain out of um, out of the soil. And when you know, if you look at a soil test and you see sodium levels and sulfur levels keep creeping up, creeping up year after year, you might have actually a hard pan and those uh, water-soluble uh, cations are not um, dropping out of the soil, leaching out of the soil. And that's what you, you do want that, especially sodium. We have a lot of our farmland around this country and around the world has increases of sodium levels from all of these salt fertilizers that we're using and that's a big problem we don't want that it can actually destroy farmland and you know back in the day some warfare people would spread salt all over the fields to destroy the crops not only for that year but also for the five ten years or 40 years down the road that's how you would part of how you would destroy an empire or culture is to salt the fields Mm. so we don't want that and we've seen an (laughs) increase in our soils and the compaction layer was likely the culprit. But anyways, I w- that's pretty much the sums up the, the soil test and we'll move yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. And the next thing we want to touch on, this is, it's kind of a fun and fascinating topic, but we wanted to address it because on this podcast, we really are aiming to educate our listeners um, using as much science as possible we want to do the research. We have no problem being told that we're wrong. We're happy to have a conversation or dig a little deeper into things. But what we speak about comes from scientific research. We read peer-reviewed papers. And so we wanted to bring up something from our previous episode where we were talking about the idea of lunar phases affecting plants. And as much as I love this concept from like an ancestral perspective and thinking about like the farmer's elm 
what's it called? Farmer's Almanac. Almanac. And just, you know, my, my bit of like hippie sense and connection to nature and the earth makes these sorts of things seem like it must be factual. It must be scientific. However, after releasing our last episode and giving it some thought and listening to it, um, we decided to dig a little bit deeper and I'll let you talk, Jay, on what you found around this topic. Yeah. And so, yeah, I I basically perpetuated this idea that I heard from from somewhere. I believe it was actually on a a podcast. Uh, I think it was a nutrition farming podcast, um, Graham Sait. And he has he's he is science based. He has a wealth of knowledge. Mm -hmm. It's a really great podcast to listen to. But you know, like everybody else out there, they're human and we make mistakes. And I don't know where he got this information from, but I really took a deep dive into the literature and, and tried to find increased increase uptake, nutrient uptake of the plants through foliar spraying based on the lunar cycles. Well, we couldn't find a, a lick of information, mm-hmm. a lick of data to support this claim that I made. So I did want to retract it. However, you know, indigenous cultures around the world, um, as well as in biodynamic farming, they do uh, use the lunar cycle for fertilization and planting and harvesting. And and even, even uh, a lot of uh, wineries out there, vineyards, they actually do, they do realize and do see that BRICS levels can increase during phases of the, of the lunar cycle. So the, it might be a possibility. We, we want to take a deeper dive on, into this idea, phenomenon, mm-hmm. And, and see if it's true uh, or just see what we can find. And maybe it's just, you know, sometimes science doesn't, there isn't science, but that doesn't mean it's true. Science is just the success of approximation towards the truth. And just because today we don't have all of the information doesn't mean that something is, isn't true. It's just that we haven't used science to confirm. Well, that's a terrible word to use in science, but we didn't, we haven't quite gotten there mm-hmm. to, to say like, Based on science, this is a thing. Right. And maybe enough studies haven't been done. And just to correct you, I think what you meant to say was just because there isn't science doesn't mean it is not true. Is that what you meant? Rather than saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. So even if the science is not there yet, doesn't necessarily mean it's not true. It just maybe means there's there's need for more research. And Mm -hmm. I don't know the way I like to think about it, thinking about the lunar cycles in relation to farming like maybe it's some placebo effect (laughs) in a way like perhaps the people that have discussed or talked about this idea maybe it comes from a place of them choosing to follow the lunar cycle and having great success yeah and maybe it's a coincidence yeah and if that's working for them by by all means carry on yeah and maybe it just helps them organize their their season absolutely it's like well I, why plant all the things right now i can wait till mm-hmm. the next cycle yeah and it gives me some time to do other things or for whatever. sure and it's a beautiful way to view the farm season mm-hmm. like to view the passing of time through the lunar cycle yeah i know we love watching it we love just looking up and seeing where we're at yeah. in the month so and we do know that the the phases of the sun right with the equinoxes and solstice that does influence plant growth mm-hmm. absolutely mm-hmm. and during periods of the full moon granted there's a lot less light hitting us but there is light at night that's mm-hmm. hitting us and you know i would i would be surprised if there is zero influence on plants but according to science or data so far in the literature i we have not yet to find it doesn't mean it's not there we just haven't found it yet so mm-hmm. we just want to touch upon touch upon that yeah, absolutely. And if yeah. you're an expert in this area, 
and have have some real data. Yep. Not just a blog. Right. <laughs> but some real, some data. real data. Or just even experience on your own farm. We would love to hear from you. So you can reach out to us. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think uh, this is a good transition point. So to get into today's episode, we wanted to take some time to talk about all things sourdough. Yeah. Uh, we are the sourdough, D-O-E, cafe after all. And we do have um, an organic bakery within that establishment. Mm-hmm. Uh, not certified organic, but every ingredient's organic. Uh, we'll work on the certification. In due time. But in due time. Um, but we get mm-hmm. so many questions about sourdough, the cultures. People always want to hear the story of our starter and how long I've had it and where it came from. Um, and so we're going just we're going to discuss all things today, from picking out fake sourdough in the grocery stores to making your own starter, and then dive a little bit into the science of it and what's actually happening within sourdough, so we can um, tell you what all the hype's about when it comes to sourdough bread. Because there is something there. Mm-hmm. Right. It really is a magical world inside that sourdough culture. Yeah. So I guess to start, though, may as well share the story of my starter. <laughs> Let's do it. So my starter, my current starter, I've had and killed a few over the years uh, from when I first ever started baking with it, probably back in 2010, I think, was the first time I experimented with sourdough. Uh, so my current sourdough does not have a name. I know many people name their sourdough cultures, but uh, not I. Um, but it came from a bakery up in British Columbia. My sister has a friend that owns Sprout, a really cool bakery cafe in Kelowna, British Columbia. Really nice and, people. Oh yeah, awesome people. He's traveled traveled a lot, and uh, yeah, it's just a very talented baker. And so my sister during COVID was able to get some sourdough starter from him. And if you listen to our podcast episode all about us, you'll have heard my story of starting baking with sourdough during COVID, kind of coming from a place of just like needing a creative outlet and also just wanting access to good quality food when grocery stores are becoming a little bit difficult to find what you wanted um and so anyway i got some sourdough starter from him through my sister and that is still the same starter that i'm now using three three and a bit years later so it's fun to think about um we'll get into a little bit later in this podcast we'll talk a bit about the uh microbes in the sourdough starter and if yeah anyway we'll get into that later um but for now i just wanted to start by pointing out that throughout this episode, as we talk about sourdough bread, sourdough cultures, we are referring to true sourdough bread. So what does that is, mean? This is the bread that comes from a real fermentation. So you are not adding yeast. The fermentation creates its own culture. Yep. And so there's yeast, like natural yeast and bacteria that are within this sourdough culture once you develop it. And um, so these are not breads that are full of flavor 
or enzymes. Active, added enzymes. Yeah, added enzymes. Active yeast, like that little, the dry powdery stuff you can buy in store. Not to say that's bad in any way. You can buy natural active yeast and use it for a variety of purposes and that's fine we use it sometimes if we're making a quick pizza dough we use it in our sourdough sandwich bread just a very very small amount so that we can do a little bit shorter of a fermentation but all those additives all those added ingredients they're there to mimic what a real sourdough product would give you um so I'll give you just a little summary of a bit of terminology so that as we go through this podcast today, you'll have a little background knowledge. These are kind of, this stems from the most frequent questions that I find I've been asked with in the cafe. So the starter, aka the mother or the sourdough culture. Um, the other thing I've heard it called lately is the wild yeast, I guess. Technically, could be. Well, there's yeast. It's part of it. It's part of the sourdough culture, but it's not just yeast. There's no. a lot of bacteria, races, or strains in there. Yeah. So. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but the starter is, when we talk about starter throughout this episode, we're talking about the sourdough starter that I have and feed every single day to make sure it stays healthy and active. And it's the fermented flour and water. That's it. No That's salt. It. It's That's not even it. any salt. No. And do not add sugar to your starter ever. I've had people ask about that and they think that it will increase the activity in it, which it may, but you're going to ruin your starter and it defeats the purpose of having a natural sourdough starter. Mm -hmm. um, an active starter, that's what you'll want if you're trying to bake sourdough frequently at home. So it's the mother starter kept at room temperature that's been fed with flour and water to reactivate that fermentation. It can take actually up to 12 hours to reach its peak activation, at which time it'll be prime to incorporate into your baking. At what temperature? Well, <laughs> so room temperature, but that really varies. So our cafe in the winter months tends to be around 60 degrees at night. And so we leave our starter, we'll feed it in the evening and it ferments for like 12 to 14 hours. And it is perfect when we go to use it the next morning at yeah. five in the summer our cafe tends to sit more around 70 to 80 degrees and so we'll actually feed the starter and store it out in our dry room which is about 50 to 60 degrees yeah and so it really just depends everything in the sourdough world is very temperature and atmosphere dependent and uh, but the ideal temperature if you're keeping your sourdough starter out to use frequently having it at 70 degrees is great yeah because the hot the hotter the temperature is the more active the metabolism of the bacteria and yeast absolutely are, and so it just ferments quicker it does yep. yeah same with uh, like the opposition so if you were to feed your starter and immediately put it in the fridge it's going to have an extremely slow fermentation which yep. is also okay depending on your purposes um another term that you may hear in the sourdough world is auto lice and that's when you take an initial quantity of flour and water and you mix it up just until you have a shaggy sort of texture with your dough and then you leave it to rest for a period of time interestingly and i don't know i have mixed reviews around this but you don't add salt any in any of these recipes you don't add salt until after this initial resting period i've had similar results in my dough with both adding the salt immediately mm -hmm. and adding it after 
However, the idea is that because salt, if you think about salt used as a preservative and in a variety of fermentations, it interacts with um, those microbes in a particular way. And so there is thought that adding your salt initially and having it physically contact that sourdough starter directly, it can cause damage or or like inhibit the natural fermentation process. And I wonder if that's more on the yeast side as opposed to the bacillus side of the culture because, you know, when we when we do kimchi, when we do sauerkraut, when we ferment um, cucumbers, etc., we actually add a, a, a salt and it's between anywhere from like one to five or even six percent mm-hmm. salt concentrations of the solution. Yeah. Uh, so I wonder if it's actually more just the yeast that's yeah, affecting. Yeah, totally. And I'd love to do a little research further into that, both around the use of salt in fermentation of vegetables and then this concept of waiting to add your salt in the bakery world and at the cafe right now we do add the salt after an auto lice period and usually that period's about 30 minutes in time and i think it does it does really help with the like having that rest period really helps with the um quality and outcome of our products now for auto lies because i don't know this word do you add any starter to that initially? Because it just says it's just flour and water. Um, yes. So you do you do also have the starter. So for example, with our sourdough bread, we would put in our starter, our flour, and our water. Mix it up to that shaggy texture. Let it rest for the 30. And then we would add in the salt, usually stirred in with a bit more water. And That's when you start folding? Uh, so that's when we would then mix it with the dough hook. So we oh, really okay. let the machine go at it. I mean, if you're, is because we're making 36 loaves in our mixer at a time. So yeah. we, we use the machine. <laughs> um, but if you were just making a single loaf at home, then yeah, that's when you would start okay. folding, stretching and folding the dough. And usually on that first stretch and fold series, that's when you would um, incorporate the salt into it. That makes sense. Yeah. And then do a series of stretches and folds after that. And it really is what it sounds like. You stretch the dough and you fold it and then <laughs> you stretch the dough and you fold it. And that just helps with the gluten and elasticity development in it, which mm-hmm. we'll talk a bit more about later. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Yeah. So an- another term that I'm always surprised, actually, that people don't know this one. I didn't know it. Oh, okay. Well, see, there you go. Well, before we right. open this place. Yeah. But. So if you ever hear someone talking about crumb, they're not necessarily... Snobby French people. What? They're not snobby French people. They're not snobby French people. They're not bakers. <laughs> <laughs> and they're probably not referring to the little crumbs of uh, bread you leave behind on the table. But so the crumb, if you hear someone talking about the crumb of your loaf, it's the texture of the inside of the loaf. So you can have an open crumb, which is what you'll typically see in authentic sourdough. Rustic breads. Yeah, and those rustic breads with that nice dark exterior that when you like pinch it or like squish it with your hands, you hear that crinkling sound, almost like the crackling of a fire. But that's the crust. That's the the crust. That's the crust. But anyway, that type of loaf. So when you cut those loaves in half, you'll see those big wide holes. Mm -hmm. And we can't wait to share with you why those holes form in the first place. But that's called an open crumb. And so a closed crumb or like a fine crumb is just going to be like your classic sandwich bread where it's just a little bit airy. but Small holes. Yeah. Teeny tiny little holes. But probably a lot more. Small little holes. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. I'd say so. Um, 
so another another term you may hear leaven loving love on depending how you want to say it i don't really care (laughs) (laughs) i honestly never say it because i just always feel silly no matter how i say it um but if you hear someone talking about the levain for sourdough or levon uh it's essentially just sourdough starter so it's prepared ahead of time to act as your leavening agent and it's what's going to make the bread rise it's the sourdough starter it's just like the application it's how you use it so it's the specific quantity that quantity that the recipe calls for so for example if you need one cup of sourdough starter in your recipe you can create your levon ahead of time by mixing half a cup of flour half a cup of water and just a little bit of your mother's starter that sourdough culture so like one tablespoon if you leave that to rest it begins fermentation that little bit of starter starts feeding, which is amazing, on the flour that you've added in. And multiplies in, in the kind of populations of the microbes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so you're basically just preparing the quantity of starter that you would need for a recipe ahead of time. Mm-hmm. And you don't have to use a lot of the mother starter to do so. At our cafe, we feed huge quantities of our starter so that we just have all that super active starter ready to put into the recipe rather than trying to separate all of uh, the different recipes and using one tablespoon. It would just be uh, a bit too much. But anyway, if you take that bit of the mother starter and add it in with some flour and water, leave it to rest at room temp for eight to 12 hours, you'll have a super active starter that you can then add to your recipe. And so sometimes on ingredient labels, instead of seeing sourdough starter or culture, you'll see the word leaven or mm-hmm. levain. Um, the last couple things I just wanted to touch on briefly are fermentation times. So in the sourdough world, ideally, the longer the fermentation, the better but it does max out mm-hmm. a 24 hour some sometimes even a 48 hour fermentation is great anything under 8 hours is considered a short fermentation but a long fermentation is anywhere between that 8 to 24 hour mark typically that's stuff that you're going to put into a cooler or your fridge overnight to give it an extra long time to proof and it's going to create a tangier bread because there's increased fermentation activity Apparently, the longer the fermentation, the greater the health benefits. And that's because it has a longer time to ferment. It's a slower fermentation. Those microbes in there have longer to feed and activate that loaf of bread. Especially on the more uh, complex molecules out there like polysaccharides and, and various proteins, the longer the fermentation period, the more opportunity is to break those down to their constituent parts mm-hmm. that are more easily digestible for us. You know, some more complex proteins are a little harder to digest. Not yeah. all, but some. Yeah. So that's kind of what we're referring to. Yeah. And so a shorter fermentation is usually in that three to eight hour range. And it's going to make a much less tangy bread. And typically, you'll need a warmer environment. So we sometimes find in the summer months when our cafe is really hot, we can get away with a little bit short of a fermentation. And in fact, sometimes we have to watch things a little bit closer. We don't often need our proof room to be fully active in the summer months because (laughs) the cafe gets up to 80 degrees. And so we usually have to watch and make sure things aren't overproofing. Um, But 
usually with a shorter fermentation recipe, you're going to add a little bit more starter. So you're giving it a little bit more of that initial activity uh, so that your product is receiving a decent fermentation before you form it and bake it. So so you mentioned this word uh, overproof. What, what does that mean and what are the kind of the, the calling cards? So if I'm somebody new at home and I want to know if something overproofed or not, what would I what would I look like? What would I look for in the bread? Yeah. So if you think about it in terms of the microbes inside of that sourdough starter that are feeding on that fresh flour and water that you've added in, they're eventually going to run out of food. <gasps> so, Starving. Yeah. The poor little things will just die on you. Um, and so basically, yeah, that's that's really it. They run, they run out of food. So that natural yeast converts to carbon dioxide gas and you end up with a dough. Natural yeast? Yeah. So like the, the, the natural, we'll we'll get, we'll get into this, but like the natural yeast from the sourdough starter, Mm because there's both yeast and bacteria in sourdough starter. Um, The microbes within that, Mm -hmm. they run out of food. Yeah. And they just kind of probably stop growing in population. Mm-hmm. They, who knows what they're doing at that point. Yeah. But is there any difference in structure? So like once it proofs or once it ferments, can I just leave that that bread out indefinitely and, and bake it a day later? Uh, not leaving it out. So the dough will become, it gets like almost runny. Like it'll get flat. There, You won't have like those big, nice air bubbles in it anymore because they'll have all collapsed. Your dough will almost, it's like it loses its elasticity and kind of collapses back in on itself. And becomes denser, stiff. Yeah, yeah I'd say it would definitely be denser. Like you could try to bake it, but that crumb is no longer going to be that nice open crumb where you see those big holes. Mm. It just might be like a really thin, flattened, pancake-looking loaf when you try and bake it. Yeah, yeah. Like if you... So if you think back to the first summer that we were baking out of the farmhouse and I would do an overnight proof of the dough just on the counter because our kitchen was cold Mm -hmm. until the heat of the summer. And then what I observed was that when our kitchen was 80 to 85 degrees overnight, all of a sudden I go to flop the bread out in the morning and it would just be this like pile of like runny mush. And so I try to reshape it and like (laughs) add more flour and bake it and it wouldn't rise. Yeah. Or it would rise a tiny little bit. Um, because of like perfect humid environment in the Dutch oven, mm-hmm. but not nearly the same. So you just lose the activity of the yeast and bacteria in there. So it sounds like if I want to bake bread at home, that I there's a, a window uh, in which I'll make a good bread. So if I don't let it proof enough, you won't have those big bubbles. It won't be active enough the the gluten hasn't formed completely enough or the um the what is the gluten complexes haven't formed completely enough but then if i wait too long then it also has a similar effect or similar end product so there really it seems like there's a window where a bread can be baked or put in the refrigerator to let sit for a bit Mm -hmm. and if you don't really 
aim for that window if you're on on either side of that window you're not going to get a a really a great product yeah yeah i'd say there's some leniency especially if you're making a single loaf at home but like a good way to check your own loaf once you have made the dough have performed some stretches and fold if you do that at home which i recommend it it really does help with the elasticity and gluten development in your loaf but you can you can feel it like if you touch the dough like push your finger into it you want that dough to spring back Mm. to you you want to be able to see that it is still elastic and still active whereas if you push your finger in it and it deflates or indents but doesn't return you've lost that elasticity so it's overproofed but in terms of a period of time i would say if you mix your dough you're going to have about a three-hour period where it sits out and you can stretch and fold it or just let it sit out. And then after that point, you're going to want to properly form it into a loaf shape. I'd recommend using a bread basket if you have one. And it really helps hold that structure. And then I would recommend putting it in the fridge overnight at that point or for the day. And then you can pull it out and bake it at dinner. Because you can bake it from cold, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. You can certainly bake it straight out of the fridge. In fact, it helps when you're scoring Mm. the surface of the dough, uh, cutting into it to make sure that gas is escaping. Um, But even if you did that first thing in the morning, that could still give you a decent fermentation past that short period of time if you wanted to bake it that night to have with dinner. But I always liked when we were baking at home, I liked preparing my bread in the evening, putting it in the fridge overnight and popping it out to bake first thing in the morning. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Are those all of the, what is it, the glossary? Yeah, the, yeah, that <laughs> the is index? the glossary of the sourdough world. Perfect. Yeah, that was really, that's really all I wanted to touch on about some specific terminology. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess the one thing I didn't really expand on too much is the start of the sourdough culture. The start of like the it starter? It comes from the start of the starter. It comes from somewhere. I was fortunate enough to get mine handed down to me, uh, and it's been passed around which is a really cool concept to think about it's like the friendship bread if you ever did that when you're in elementary school no i don't even remember the concept exactly i just remember friendship bread and you would like pass around maybe it was a sourdough starter but you'd pass around like this bag of doughy stuff and take it home and keep a bit for yourself and then pass it on to say five more friends and then they'd take some and keep some to make their own bread at home pass them on anyway all the parents are like jesus christ yeah, no, another one of these that's just gonna die I'm never gonna bake bread um anyway so sourdough culture it's true origin it's actually really simple it's flour and water that's it what what no you don't need to go online and spend 30 dollars for someone to send you a little packet of sourdough that starter you rehydrate or whatever yeah, you rehydrate um Although you can do that. Nothing against that. But it really is as simple as mixing flour and water together in equal ratios. Um, It's time consuming. It's a little tedious. And you do use a lot of flour initially to get it going. So basically, if you were to take equal parts water and flour, I always do everything by weight in the baking world. It really helps with accuracy um, for your end product. But Should I you, do that in ounces or grams? I like to use grams. And it's it's not just because I'm from Canada. <laughs> <laughs> it's just the baker's world. Using grams is more accurate. 
um, and milliliters for water or for liquids. But it's the same. Because one, one, one milliliter gram is, yeah. of water is one gram. Exactly. Yes. Uh, so that's an easy conversion. Yep. Um, but anyway, so you're taking equal part of flour and water. I always would recommend using an organic high quality flour. However, if you're just trying to get started, you know you're going to waste quite a bit of flour to get a starter developed because you do have to discard and keep feeding it over a week. So if you want to start with something a little bit cheaper, go for it. But like when you reach that point of baking, please, please, please use organic high quality flour um, for the sake of your health and the health of our planet. <laughs> um but yeah, so flour, water, the correct temperature and fermentation will almost immediately begin. So the yeast and bacteria from the environment around you and the flour on itself hands. on your hands, on the utensils you're using. On the flour. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's yep. what you just said. Sorry. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> um, so those yeast and bacteria will essentially start feeding on the sugars in the flour right away. So this is where that term wild yeast comes Ooh. from. The, you're not adding yeast to the sourdough culture. I guess in a sense it is wild. It comes from the surroundings. And this is what ferments the flour. Um, there's recipes and instructions all over the internet, but it really comes down to dedicating some time <laughs> to the process. So you would start that first day, you mix it all together, you leave it out at room temp, you make sure the temperature of your water is adequate, something around 75 degrees should do, mix it all up, lightly cover it and let it do its thing for 24 hours. And depending on your, like the conditions of your house or wherever you're doing this, you're going to have to watch it close and you might have to be extra patient. You may have to wait 36 hours to notice any tiny little bubbles in it. But if you're in a really warm climate or your house is kept really warm, it might be less than 24 hours before you notice some activation in there. And so within that 24 to 36 hour mark, you're going to take that mixture of flour and water and you're going to throw away half of it and <laughs> this is where it gets a little wasteful there's all sorts of recipes out there for discard if you want to put that to use but you're gonna discard half of it and add in equal parts of flour and water to feed it again and this is because you want to provide as much fresh feed <laughs> for those bacteria as possible and so you do this every day for a week Usually by the fourth day, you start to see more and more activity. So the bubbles will get bigger. You'll see it rise more and you can monitor it. But typically it's about seven days before that starter is actually ready to use. And once it's ready to use, you then have to make the decision of if you're going to continue feeding it every single day and keep it at room temperature or if you're going to store it in your refrigerator. And that allows you about a week's period where it can just sit dormant until you're ready to pull it out and use it again. Mm -hmm. And so, so I start this, I start the starter and how, how do I know when it starts to become active at all? You know, it's not just, <laughs> it's not just the, the small bubbles that are forming, but it's also the volume, not the weight, but the volume of the amount of starter and totally. so I've seen you use some um, marker on the outside of, of our bins mm -hmm. and and put a line where 
after you mix the water and flour, you put a line right where that is. And that way, you know, if it rises above that line, that it, there is some level of activity in there. Yeah, for sure. And I wouldn't recommend doing that on like the first day <laughs> that you start mixing up a starter from scratch. Maybe because, out. Yeah, you could be disappointed. Um, but yeah, so looking for those bubbles, but then also you'll see the volume increase by like two to three times its original size. It's amazing. Which is really cool. And yeah, it's the volume changing, not the weight, because you can, you could, oops, you could weigh your starter when you first feed it and say whatever you have. 2,000 grams. I mean, that's more bakery scale, but you'll still have 2,000 grams tomorrow, but it'll look three times larger in volume. And that's all the air bubbles. That's all exactly. The, yeah, yeah. The gases that are byproducts. Yep. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so that's a great way if you, if you want a bit more of a visual, if you can't quite tell if it's um, growing yet to put a little line on your jar. I always recommend using something that's clear. Glass is great if you are baking on a small scale and can have just a nice little jar with mm -hmm. your pretty starter in it. In the bakery, we have to use big plastic tubs because we're feeding anywhere from like 2,900 to like, I don't know, 6,000 <laughs> grams of starter. It's a so, lot. Yeah, you need a little extra space for that. Now, what, you know, say I want to start, start a starter and I put, 100 grams of water, 100 grams of flour, and I put it in a 200-gram jar. You, you shouldn't do that because you need the space for the, to let that starter rise, or else it's going to be overflowing by the time you come back to it and, and check on its progress. Yeah. So give it space. Yeah, totally. So I can't do this conversion quick enough in my head, but we have 24-quart containers and in those about the max I can feed is 3,000 grams of starter. So I'll do 3,000 grams starter, 3,000 grams water, mm -hmm. 3,000 grams flour. So that's 9,000 grams. And that'd be about 19 pounds. And 24 quarts of water is 48 pounds. So you, you give like... It's like one third of the, the volume originally. Right. And then that goes up to the top. So I'm, I feed about, say, 9.5 quarts of starter. And by the next morning, it's almost at that 24 quart mark, mm -hmm. approximately, mm -hmm. give or take, depending on the temperature I had the water at, temperature of the room, period of time, etc. Yep. Yeah. Well, let's see. Oh, uh, one last fun thing that I wanted to touch on, um, specifically around the world of the starter. As I'm sure you've gathered, it is very dependent on temperatures of all things. Temperature of the flour, temperature of the water, temperature of the space that it is in. And it just takes a little bit of time as you start the process to see what your environment is providing it. And it, it differs everywhere. So I, I can't tell you how your starter is going to do in your house unless you want to tell me uh, the temperature that you keep your house at at all times a day and the temperature of the water you're using but a general rule of thumb is kind of everything around 70 degrees so if you store your flour in the house you're taking water from the tap and take the temperature of it if you can make You'll sure that water's around 70 degrees it's a bit hard to judge just by touching it I'm usually wrong and then um, yeah keeping your room 
at about 70 if you can. And those will be pretty prime conditions. Uh, the last thing, though, I, I get a lot of questions about troubleshooting starter. Starter that's no longer <laughs> rising, even though they're feeding it. And uh, one thing you might observe, if you've left your starter too long and those little bacteria in there have run out of food, you'll end up with this layer of alcohol on top of your starter and it's called hooch, <laughs> but it's just a liquid alcohol layer that forms on top of that culture when it hasn't been fed in a long time. So it's like a whole other stage of fermentation byproduct, which is yeah. fascinating. And I don't know much more about that except that it does happen. Mm -hmm. And I've seen it in my own. Some people will just mix it right back in. Usually I'll pour it off and then start uh, feeding the starter again and it'll take a little bit longer to get it active again. But it is possible to save unless you've left it for like months and months. But usually like one week periods, 10 days at most between your feedings on your starter. In the fridge, not out. In the fridge, yeah. yes. Very crucial point. If yeah. it's kept out at room temperature you must be feeding it daily yeah yeah okay and so what kind of what kind of flowers do you use for starter and and baking and, and why yeah so there's uh, there's so many different flowers and i think we'll probably do a whole episode just about flowers at some point in time but what we are using at the cafe uh, are a couple different organic flowers and as I said earlier, I'd always recommend people use organic flour when possible because you just know then that it hasn't been sprayed with glyphosate and it'll just be much healthier for you. Um, but we get our flour from a mill out of Utah called Central Milling. And so we use two different ones. One is a high protein flour for our bagels, English muffins, baguettes. It's 13.5% protein. And it's a dark northern spring wheat and hard red winter wheat that's grown in the Pacific Northwest in volcanic soils, which is actually super cool. And so having that higher protein flour really helps um, with those types of bakery items that you want to have a little more stiffness to them, like a little more density and elasticity. So that's why we use that for our bagels, English muffins and baguettes. And then... We use a malted bread flour for our rustic sourdough and it's, and, and I mean, we use that for like everything else we make. So it's just a classic artisan baker's flour, also organic. And that one is 11 and percent protein. So a little less protein, but it's a blend of hard red wheat and spring wheat with the addition of some malted barley. And that malt actually helps increase the enzyme activity during fermentation. And so you might read about like when you're starting your own sourdough culture to add some malted barley or to use a barley type flour. And so that's why we went with this blend. It just gives what we need to have a really nice fermentation on our breads. Um and then, so <laughs> I've read a few studies and I haven't dove far enough into the science behind the different flowers. So I'm not going to get into it right now because I'd like to have a bit more science to back that. But I've read different blogs where people do experiments with whole wheat, white flour, barley, rye, and make starters use the also just use the flowers in their baking to see what the different results are. And so we'll get into that one day once we have a bit more time to research it. What I what I do know about different grains and of course the flowers flowers just 
ground up grains of different plants is that they have endogenous enzymes in the actual plants. These are plant enzymes that they produce themselves. And and those different enzymes help break down different compounds that are either present in the plant, that are present in the plant, rather. So I wonder if barley has a certain type of enzyme that helps with, what did you say? It was like, it helps to ferment it, I guess. Yeah, yeah. It, it increases the enzyme activity for fermentation, mm-hmm. having that malted barley in it. And I've heard something similar about rye flour, that rye can have a greater fermentation and maybe it's due to the carbohydrate content or the sugars in like within that particular grain. Mm-hmm. I'm not certain. Yeah. Um, okay. But yeah, so within those flours we use, uh, the hard wheat means that it has a higher gluten content, which is interesting to note, uh, which means it's going to be more elastic and create more structure in your loaf of bread. Whereas a soft wheat, and you can usually look, if you're buying good quality flour, it's going to say whether it's a hard wheat or a soft. And then usually if it's a spring or a winter. Uh, But the soft wheat's going to have a a lower gluten content, but that means your bread's going to have less elasticity to it. So you might notice that it spreads out a little bit more. It's a bit harder to like actually form and create structure within. Um, And the last interesting thing, uh, again, I think only if you're buying high quality flowers can you find this info, but you can find something called the ash content. And the flower that we use is about 0.6 of a percent. And so what this is, it it means that there are little bits of the bran and the germ that are actually left in our flower. And so this adds some texture, a little bit more flavor than when you have like that uh, all-purpose blanched flower that has everything pulled out of it and they have to enrich it because there was nothing left before. Um, and so having a little bit of this ash content gives it a little more nutritional value and uh yeah it's just fun to think about the process they literally will like take and burn down the wheat like the germ to figure out what that percent content is interesting yeah and i'd love to go into more details but that's the max of my knowledge on that (laughs) subject so maybe we can bring in like a a wheat or a mill milling Milling expert specialist on this topic because i would love to know more about that whole process and it sounds like the the higher the ash content the the less processed that flour is in general i would say so uh but i do know that mills can extract the bran and the germ grind that up and add some back in also and so I i don't know i don't know enough about the flour milling process to know more because i from what i recall i think the germ is the is where a lot of those micronutrients are like iron and and calcium among Mm -hmm. others and that's like the really nutritious part it's like under the bran right and it's a really nutritious part of the um of the actual grain the bran is is quite insoluble high in hard in fiber i would assume and that's why and oftentimes whole wheat or brown rice is a little bit hard it's harder to di- mm-hmm. digest and that outer bran also has and we'll get into this a little bit f- later in the podcast but it has a compound called phytic acid which can actually inhibit the uptake of micronutrients into your body mm-hmm. uh, because it is a chelating agent but we'll we'll talk about how to bypass that and to actually be able to digest and improve digestibility of your sourdough or sourdough breads yeah totally uh, and just to confirm, because I pulled up a little diagram here, you you described the bran as being that outer shell, the germ is within. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Okay, and then cool. the endosperm, I think, is yeah inside that. Yeah, the guts within. Yeah, and yeah. that's like, yeah, never mind. Anyway, okay. so um, what's real sourdough? As yeah. opposed to fake sourdough. Yeah. Well, so what you want to look for? Um, first of all, read the ingredients. If you're going into a grocery store, like I hope you have a local baker that's truly pouring their love into making you a nutritious loaf of bread. But if you're going to a grocery store to buy bread, make sure you're reading the ingredients and just keep in mind, it's actually pretty unlikely that you're buying a real loaf of sourdough bread. And so all that should be in a loaf of artisan sourdough bread is flour, water, salt, and your sourdough culture or starter, which as I mentioned earlier, you may also see Levain written in there. And that is a form of sourdough culture. And that's just made of water and flour. Water and flour. So all, and of, your, it. all of your ingredients should be just be flour, water, salt. Yes. Yeah. That's it. If there's more than that, I would question it. There should definitely not be any sugar, any added yeast, any natural active yeast, any flavors, any enzymes, or any preservatives. All of those are red flags and indicators that it's not a true fermented sourdough loaf. You know, because we do add a, a tiny bit of yeast to our, our sandwich loaves to help get that really fine, those fine bubbles mm-hmm. among other processes in the, in the in the making of that sandwich bread. Yeah. But so like, you know, if I do say if I go to the grocery store and I just see flour, water, salt sourdough culture and then yeast yeah i i I feel like that's okay i think and i mean the reason we do that is so that we can have a shorter fermentation and still get a really nice rise on our bread but our sandwich bread also has a little bit of sugar and organic olive oil added in and that's to create the appropriate texture yeah and so when i when i'm talking about like sourdough not being real i'm referring to like those round loaves where you go in and you want that like authentic artisan feel like the crisp crust chewy interior but if you do see added active yeast check to make sure it's natural because active yeast can actually have some gross chemicals and preservatives added in which would have to be listed but if it just says natural active yeast that's not a terrible option and it's likely that the baker has added that just to help promote a slightly quicker fermentation but as long as in addition to that natural active yeast you see sourdough culture starter or the levain then at least you're still getting that fermentation from those natural bacteria and yeast if you see added enzymes in that ingredient Mm -hmm. list just run away yeah like there's no there's no need for those added enzymes they are just probably not very good at making naturally leavened bread Mm -hmm. and they have to add that in and it's like it's almost like a flavor enhancer totally it's usually like you'll see sourdough enzymes or flavor Mm -hmm. enzymes added and it's to try to mimic the taste of sourdough so that kind of like acidic tangy flavor yeah but it's not natural no and these these enzymes are um, very likely you know they're in these giant facilities that are making you know it's food processing Mm -hmm. it's food processing so if you want to be a little more closer to nature or whatever and you want to eat more natural we definitely recommend going to a local baker Mm -hmm. or if you are going to go to the grocery store get organic sourdough and that will very likely have, well, of course, it'll have organic products in it. Mm-hmm. And it, it will probably be 
naturally leavened or at least close to it. Yeah, hopefully. 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 But um, another thing you can look for in when you're trying to find the best loaf of sourdough, look for something that has a shelf life. It's not Wonder Bread. <laughs> it's not going to have an expiration 10 months down the road because that stuff is made of garbage. Um, but it should have something that's usually like anywhere from, I'd say, depending on if it's a bakery or grocery store, like a three to seven day uh, expiration. It's real food. (laughs) So therefore, it's not going to last as long. But the fermentation of the sourdough actually does help extend the shelf life compared to like if you made just a yeasted bread at home that could mold. But the, the sourdough itself, that culture helps to extend the shelf life, reduce the mold formation. And so, yeah, just looking for something that has a shorter shelf life at the grocery store will help you make a a better choice about the ingredients that are within it. And the last thing you want to look for, and this is great because we actually had a customer come in today and she was so excited. She's like, I love looking at your bread. It's so beautiful. I love that it has that dark crust. Like it looks like real bread. And I think especially in America, in North America in general, I guess, we've moved away from like the authentic style of baking. Like people have become accustomed to seeing pale and light in color, sliced baked goods and bread. And that's not how it should be. You want your bread to be baked fully for the best digestibility and for the best quality and for the greatest opportunity for that loaf to fully rise. And so visually, you want to buy a loaf of bread that is actually darker in color. And usually, our baker actually was just telling me today what you uh, want to see on that loaf of bread is a about three different colors. So on the very top where that loaf splits open, you want to see your lightest color. That'll be kind of a golden white, golden brown color. And then as you move away from that, it gets a little bit darker brown. And by the base, you have this beautiful dark crust surrounding it. So you're not looking for a pale, squishy loaf of bread. If that's what you want, then maybe go buy some sandwich bread because the artisan bread is meant to have this beautiful crust to it. And so don't look for something smooth and shiny. It might be <laughs> undercooked or full of shit ingredients. Um, so look for something that looks like it was handmade. And if you don't have a bakery in your town, I'm sorry to be teasing you with these uh, <laughs> concepts, but look, ask around. If there's anyone that's like baking of any sort, talk to them. See if they're willing to experiment with a sourdough type loaf. And I guarantee it will sell in your community. (laughs) People are after it. Yeah. But uh, anyway, we'll dive a little bit into the science of sourdough because it is it really is fascinating. And I know it seems like there's a lot of hype around sourdough, but it's for a really good reason. And we hope to be able to share with you guys some really cool facts and information that we've learned through our research and that we've learned through our experimenting with baking with sourdough and kind of pushing the limits to see what it can provide us. So sourdough has been around, let's be real, since really since the dawn of time. You know, it's the first known recording of civilizations uh, working with sourdough cultures 
were actually the Egyptians dating back to at least 1500 BC. So these recipes, and this is a recipe, sourdough, the sourdough process is a recipe. It dates back 3,500 plus years. And that's at least just the recording of the, the oldest known sourdough cultures. You know, this has probably been around since we've been growing grains or at least harvesting wild grains, you know, back in Mesopotamia or even earlier. We don't really know. So it's, it's, it's integral to the, the, the health of humans. And so let me just pull this up here. And so you you've might have heard of like sourdough cultures and there's almost like a, a terroir of sourdough cultures and how, you know, the San Francisco bread is or San Francisco sourdoughs, they're like very sour and they take a long time to rise. And then the French sourdough, it, it might be a little more subtle and have a bit of a mild flavor. And so in uh, in 2021, and this was this is a really beautiful really, really beautiful study. Uh, it was performed by Elizabeth Landis out of Tufts University. And then there was a, a wide variety of other contributors, some out of um, uh, the, the University of Colorado, I think UC Boulder it was, and then North Carolina and, and elsewhere. But they, they all got together and what they were trying to, to understand is, are there bioregional characteristics of various sourdough cultures that create these unique breads? Like, are there different, what's going on with these different kind of bioregional characteristics of the sourdough. And so what they did is they performed genetic sequencing on over 500 different sourdough cultures from from actually from four continents. And it was actually weighted pretty heavily in North America. So I'd, I would like to see some follow-up studies with uh, uh, higher uh, sample sizes in these other continents, in, including like Asian cultures and then, you know, uh, Southern, because I think it was like North America, South America, Europe, and uh, it might have been, it might have been, I forget what the last, maybe the Middle East. Um, but anyway, so what they found is that there's, there's, um, well, let me take a, let me take a step back for a second. So, uh, no, that is where I want to be. Sorry. What they found is that there's the diversity of microbial life within each culture actually just just does not correlate with geographical region, uh, despite what many people out there think. And so the results showed basically a, a median, uh, so like the, the middle number of about seven bacterial strains and 35 different fungal sequence variants throughout all 500 samples. And what's really interesting is actually 97% of those 500 samples were found to be part of the lactobacillus genus. And, but surprisingly, they actually, they also found a significant amount of this um, bacteria called Rhodospiralis, I think is how you say that, or the abbreviation is AAB. And 70% of the fungal reeds, or the, you know, the, the fungus, or the fungi that they found in, which is a yeast, are actually found in the sourdough cultures, were found to be Saccharomyces. And then there are some other microorganisms detected, like indoor and outdoor molds, plant pathogens, plant endophytes, which are actually a really interesting kind of section of living beings where these um, organisms actually live inside plants. And then as well as other microbes associated with like human skin, drinking water, and of course soil, because grains are grown in soil, which is good. And and what's interesting about this particular study is they... they've. Uh, is that they actually found 147 
uh, of the 500 samples to contain a bacteria that's called acetic acid bacteria. Uh, the two predominant ones were acetobacter and gluconobacter. And so acetic acid is actually, you've probably heard it before, but it's the main ingredient in vinegar. In fact, 4% uh, of, a, of vinegar is acetic acid. And, uh, and acetobacter are really, are they're actually able to convert ethanol, which is like the alcohol or the hooch that you probably mm-hmm. find on the top of really old sourdough cultures, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it's like, th- that's probably the, the ethanol that's produced by this... Um, this yeast, which is called Saccharomyces. And so the researchers propose that this similarity of sourdough cultures uh, may be explained by really the widespread distribution of wheat, but also commercial sourdough cultures around the world. So, you know, you can buy cultures online that are freeze-dried or whatever, dehydrated, Mm -hmm. or like Ashley did, she got her starter from up in Canada, and some people then, you know, travel to Asia, and then, you know, maybe they share their starter there. And so there's this there's this kind of play happening all around the world where now there's um, just this increased velocity of all these different starters moving around the world. And so there might be, as they put it, quote, there's this geographical, potentially there's this geographical homogenization of starter and flower microbes that likely swamps out any regional differences in potential yeast or bacteria that can disperse into starters. And and I thought that was kind of a a beautiful idea is that like we're all sharing this very similar culture that's feeding our planet really healthy food. Friendship bread. (laughs) That's exactly it. Friendship bread. Uh, So basically, I think what they're or what we gathered from this is that concept or maybe misinformation or myth around the idea that everyone's sourdough starter is very different because of their personal environment is maybe not so true no no i mean maybe not but you know this is just kind of the this was really one of the first Mm -hmm. looks at bioregional differences in sourdough cultures and so any good science is reproducible and falsifiable so what i would want to see is a some several follow-up studies with Mm -hmm. more even distribution of um um, of sample sizes, but also I would I would actually like to see sourdough cultures that have not that have like been with a particular culture that has not and had any outside influence mm-hmm. for many years or whatever. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Like a, a little island somewhere that's growing their own wheat using their spring water has not brought in any wheat, has not brought in any water, water, and mm-hmm. are strictly using what's there. Yeah, it would be really interesting. Yeah, to compare that to like what was analyzed in this study yeah yeah and another shortcoming of it's not really a shortcoming it's just the cost of actually doing real science is that the um the process to actually genetically sequence these different strains of of bacteria and yeasts was not yet powerful enough or precise enough to to determine a like intraspecific strain diversity and what that means is, you know, so bacteria are really, really good at kind of, I don't know if the term is mutating. We're going to bring on a microbiologist here in a minute uh, or in a couple of weeks. So I'll be excited to talk to him about this, this phenomenon or idea. But, you know, within each, within uh, like the lactobacillus cultures, like one strain can actually have slight, slight differences of, of characteristics, um, say from 
in Asia versus here or something, or, you know, probably depends on the food that they're eating, et cetera, because they're really good at kind of changing their DNA and then actually sharing that DNA in, in the form of messaging extracellularly to other bacteria that then take in that DNA and, and replicate various proteins or whatever to help them survive an environment. And so they just didn't have the sequencing capacity uh, or the machines to do these really specific, nuanced um, um, introspections into the the differences of these strains. It, does, did I explain that well? I think so. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's a weird. Yeah. Okay. Um. Yeah. Should we talk about the? kind of the, the digestion of gluten and other proteins now totally okay yeah i was thinking that would be this would be a good time to dive into that there's we so we're on a mission at the <laughs> sourdough and um at least once per day we get asked if we have gluten-free bread if we're going to why we don't and we'll dive more into that later but um what i try to talk to our customers about first of all i always ask them if they are celiac because having celiac disease it sucks i'm sorry for all of you out there that actually have celiac disease um because it's a really scary autoimmune disease and it truly does inhibit you from consuming bread or even meat. anything, even Gluten. something that's made in a facility with wheat. Absolutely. And so my first question to customers when they're looking for gluten-free bread is ask them if they're celiac. No. Mo- I've had one out of probably the 200 people that have asked that is actually celiac. Two. Two, actually. Um, but that's it. Yeah. The rest just have this idea, conception, or thought that gluten and wheat, gluten and or wheat, they don't actually know doesn't sit well with them and so we're on a mission to educate people about what gluten is how it interacts how in fermentation you're breaking it down before you even consume it yeah and so that's what we wanted to dive into today is to try to help educate people around what gluten really is and perhaps is it so scary yeah yeah, I think it, it kind of has a bad name. I think people are maybe looking for something to blame because they're maybe mistreating their bodies in other ways or not eating strictly, like super strictly organic wheat products. And it's not fair to the poor little wheats because they're producing some damn good bread. <laughs> they're producing some great bread and they've been around with us for thousands of years. Mm-hmm. We it's haven't, a staple. Yeah. We haven't had gluten. Gluten sensitivity wasn't even in the literature until I think it was 1973. Mm-hmm. It wasn't even talked about. Celiac disease was, mm-hmm. and celiac disease has been known for a while. Yeah. Um, but not gluten sensitivity. And yeah. so we kind of just want to break down what gluten is. Well, what is gluten? Gluten is a protein, and it's as simple as that. And so there are proteins are kind of these more complex structures that are made up of amino acids. Amino acids are kind of smaller molecules that come together and make this, you know, complex molecule that is a protein and protein is involved in, in so many aspects of our life and our bodies and our metabolism. And it's really important for us. And, and so there are these enzymes that help break down protein, right? We actually produce endogenous enzymes and culture in our bacterial cultures in our gut produce enzymes that help 
break down more complex proteins. With every protein, there's a constituent enzyme that is that either breaks it down or there's things that synthesize or synthases. What we're going to talk about is the uh, enzyme that breaks down generally proteins. They're called um, the the process is called proteolysis, or and there's also hydrolysis, but we won't really differentiate between the two. But proteolysis is the breakdown of proteins into their constituent amino acids by various enzymes, as we just said. There's like I said, there's a whole range of different enzymes found in nature. Um, but yeah, so so gluten is actually it, may, it generally makes up about eighty percent of the protein that you find in wheat flour. It does vary depending on the flour, but that's a, kind of a general concentration. And then, as Ashley said before, proteins make up about twelve to four, twelve to fourteen percent of the flour for bread making. And there are these specific species in the Lactobacillus genus. And one of the species is called Lactobacillus San Franciscensis. Mm -hmm. And we'll just say San Francisco bacteria <laughs> to keep it easy. And so in 1996, which is, you know, getting close to 30 years ago already, there are these a team of Italian researchers. There's Gobetti et al. They analyzed the proteolic system, proteolytic, excuse me, system of these species. And they actually isolated three very specific enzymes it produced. And these three enzymes are called aminopeptidase, dipeptidase, and serine protease. That last enzyme has actually been showed to, to degrade gliadin, which is a component of gluten that causes celiac disease. And so they did a follow-up study, the same team of Italian researchers in 2002, about six years later. And they were actually the first to demonstrate that the hydrolysis, which is kind of similar to proteolysis, but um, the hydrolysis of several proteins found in wheat, specifically albumin, globulin, and gliadin. And they found that over 50% of these proteins in the sourdough culture were broken down throughout the process of sourdough bread making, which is really fascinating, right? Yeah, yeah that's significant. It's significant, yeah. yeah. And I'm sure there's ways to increase that where you, maybe you get to 90% of those complex proteins are broken down into their more constituent amino acids for better uptake. And so this, this partial hydrolysis of gliadin by these lactic acid bacteria, primarily the San Francisco bacteria, um, also seem to positively influence the degree of softening of the bread and its stability to, to during fermentation, excuse me. And so this creates kind of like a stiffer gluten complex that provides that structure that we see in good sourdough naturally leavened bread. Mm -hmm. And and you could probably touch upon that, right? I mean, we just did, but, you know, it, it forms structure. It helps to form these kind of, you know, what do you, how do you, as a baker, how do you describe like the, 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 the gluten strands type thing? Like I, it performs. I always, yeah. I always just say it, it has like, you can tell the gluten has developed based on the elasticity and structure of the bread. And that yeah. structure is just like having dough that you can pull apart and it comes back together. It doesn't rip apart. Yeah. It doesn't tear. It doesn't like just stretch forever and never come back on itself. Like yeah. it is the gluten that's doing that work to create that bond, to have that elasticity. But this does make me think about the the point I started with in talking to our customers before I got carried away standing up for wheat um, <laughs> in, in asking customers if they're actually celiac. I always 
try to kindly persuade them to try a loaf of our sourdough bread. One, it's organic, so there is no glyphosate or shit in it. Mm -hmm. And two, it is sourdough fermented naturally with a long fermentation for our standard rustic loaf. And I love sharing success stories with the skeptics <laughs> about all of our customers that have had really amazing results. They can eat our bread and they come back in so excited saying, oh my God, this is the first bread I've had in years that I can eat and I don't feel bloated or gross or weighed down or foggy. And so I always just try to get people to at the very least try it. Yeah. If you're not celiac, you'll be okay. You'll be trying fine. Trying some bread. Yeah. And if it still bothers your gut, then maybe you have some some other issue. Yeah, maybe right? you have a candida overgrowth. Maybe, yeah, maybe. Um, okay, so so in that in that 2021 study that I talked about with Elizabeth Landis out of Tufts, um, they also found this San Francisco bacteria, which is again Lactobacillus sanfrincensensis. It was actually, when it was present in these sourdough cultures, it was actually became the dominant bacteria, which is really interesting. So Mm -hmm. when it wasn't there, of course, it wasn't dominant. But when it was there, it it really dominated over the other bacillus strains, like bacillus strains like Plantarum and Brevis. And 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 I don't I don't really have a point to that, but I just thought it was really interesting. I wonder why though. It must I like I guess it's it's maybe like if you think of it as a feeding frenzy, perhaps it is just quicker to feed on the sugars in that new flower than some of those other strains. And I wonder if it's better adept or more adept to um, produce these various enzymes that help quickly break down um, um, these complex proteins into more into more usable food for them. Yeah, perhaps. And so maybe they maybe they're just a, they're a more dominant bacterium. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. So to kind of sum up this this paper, you know, it does seem there's definitely more research to be done, but that's the beauty of science is that sometimes there's a a study that comes out and it hope it just opens up so many more questions, but it, it kind of sends you in the trajectory of where your your scope of consciousness, your window of consciousness should should light up and move towards. And so, you know, what what future research should be done? Well, um, it, it likely what should be done is that um, specific it should be done on specific species to determine if it could be used to produce sourdough breads that are made from wheat with low enough parts per million of the specific components of gluten. So that's like primarily gliadin, among other components but the specific components of gluten that antagonize the gut of those of celiac disease. I'm not sure if it's possible to get to a position, a place where we can um, create an environment where these bacteria can fully break down that, that gluten molecule and gliadin um, into, into specific compounds that don't antagonize the gut of those with celiac disease. Mm. Not sure if it's possible, but getting closer to that, it could be an interesting way to combat celiac disease yeah as far as if people want to eat wheat yeah yeah Yeah. um well so the (laughs) next thing we want to touch on this is kind of a hot topic these days it is um a topic of controversy a topic with a lot of misinformation to be perfectly honest and many people within the social media world advertising and uh i don't know stomping on shitting on yeah, all all of the above on 
phytic acid. So here we go. First of all, if you're out there trying to promote health and wellness, you shouldn't just be saying phytic acid is bad. Don't eat anything containing phytic acid. If you're going to go down that road, tell people why you think that. Tell people what the alternatives are. Tell people how phytic acid interacts within their body. Give them some information. It drives us mental. Ugh. Seeing the amount of people out there that claim to be influencers, scientists, health practitioners, doctors that are just saying phytic acid is bad. Do not eat it. But because they have hundreds of thousands of followers and likes, people buy into this. Yeah. And, you know, like the the, the likes of Paul Saladino in, in like this Meat Mafia podcast or whatever, like they're talking about like how you shouldn't eat you shouldn't eat any plants because mm -hmm. they have these anti-nutrients and you shouldn't eat any fiber fiber's bad for yeah, you yeah it's like okay well it you probably shouldn't eat certain plants if you have autoimmune diseases mm -hmm. like you should try and reduce um your your dietary intake or, or play pay closer attention mm -hmm. to it but yeah, phytic acid as some of these people have said it is actually a chelating agent and what what a key what a chelation is or what what a um, a chelating molecule is it's basically so it come chelate is basically it comes from um what's that dead language <laughs> that people used to um latin thank you <laughs> <laughs> i didn't think i was gonna get that one <laughs> got, nice job it comes from latin and it means claw so you can kind of think of of this molecule with a bunch of little claws mm, clawing and they, on attaching to yeah and they and they claw on to cations remember in the last podcast cations are just positively charged atoms like a zinc is positively charged iron is positively mm -hmm. charged as Probably is calcium calcium magnesium Magnesium. magnesium yep manganese potassium potassium mm -hmm. and so phytic acid actually it can inhibit the uptake of these cations up into your body because it tightly binds to them and then you just basically just excrete it out of your body well why why do plants produce phytic acid well they produce phytic acid because it, you can you actually find a lot of phytic acid on the actual germ, the outer shell of seeds, of grains, right? Well, because how do plants reproduce? Well, they put out seed and then they disperse the seed, however means, through birds, you know, through the dietary tract of birds or by the wind or or by sticking on your clothes or whatever, right? And that's... And they can't really protect all of those young once they leave the mother plant. So they produce, remember, they're brilliant chemists, plants are. And so they produce these compounds that inhibit other organisms from getting into the endosperm, getting into the inside of the seed where, like, all the food is, where all the protein, carbohydrates, and fats are. And they produce phytic acid, among other compounds, that inhibit other beings from getting to that food that the seed needs next year when that seed germinates it's not photosynthesizing yet it actually it all of its metabolism is from the 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 compounds that they put into that seed from the previous generation mm -hmm. and that's why phytic acid i'm sure of i'm not positive but i'm pretty sure of why it exists and so yeah, it can significantly reduce the bioavailability of the nutrients. But what happens in sourdough fermentation is in the process, it activates 
endogenous enzymes that are present in the weed flower that actually break down phytic acid, Mm -hmm. which is really interesting. So like when you hydrate seeds, there's a whole cascade of, of processes that are quickly happening. And one of them is they release these enzymes and one of these enzymes actually breaks down phytic acid immediately and phytic acid goes away Mm -hmm. and it's not a problem anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, sorry to interrupt. No, you're good. Um, just in thinking about like many varieties of food that do contain phytic acid. So legumes, grains, if you think about ancestrally, how, these items were prepared like most of us i won't say all because geez louise you just never know but most of us have the common sense and intelligence to prepare these foods in the appropriate way we aren't walking around eating raw unprocessed grains and legumes (laughs) we are preparing them in a way through cooking baking fermentation um Soaking. soaking them leavening them to completely eliminate or reduce or destroy the, is it phytates, phytic acid, like from the phytic acid. Yeah. And so by the time we consume them, like, you know, from raw form to processed, cooked to our plate and into our belly, it's not a big issue. Now, if you're eating undercooked breads, if you're eating undercooked legumes, or yeasted yeah. breads. Or yeasted or breads. Yeasted breads. Then perhaps you're going to have some digestive discomfort and issues. And perhaps you won't be utilizing and absorbing the nutrients that would otherwise be provided to you from that food item. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's funny because with the onset of the in, in the industrial and food revolutions, we've come to understand food differently. And 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 we come to, we've come to understand recipes different differently recipes are not just about a quarter cup of sugar and one cup of flour and whatever it's not just the ingredients it's the process it's the steps that is that sometimes that's a really important part of a recipe like if you want to make a roux you wouldn't put the water in first and then try and put flour in at the end and be like well why isn't it making a a beautiful roux and not add any fat (laughs) and not add any fat exactly or if you're uh, you know you get the point I won't go on, but, um, you know, recipes are important. The process of the recipe is very important. And, yeah. and these are age old traditions that have been passed down from generation to generation, even before humans, very likely, even before humans understood what phytic acid was, they understood what phytic acid was, or these other compounds that are in grains. They probably tried to eat a raw, some raw legumes and the oligosaccharides in that legume either killed them or it was such a bad gastrointestinal pain that they were like, well, we need to figure another way out to eat these, eat these legumes. And so they soak them for a long period of time because various, various anti-nutrients, quote unquote, that are in legumes are water soluble. So you pull them out and that's why you change the water every single time. Mm-hmm. So I just want to touch upon that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, back to phytic acid. Yeah. Back to the phytic acid. So, yeah, so <laughs> over 70% of the phytic acid in this follow-up study, uh, I think this was the 2002 study with Italian researchers, um, was shown to be degraded. So over, that, that's crazy, over 70% was shown to be degraded just by the process of sourdough fermentation. 
And then the pH with, um, was between 4.3 and 4.6, which is like a more suitable acidic environment. And so the, liter the literature describes over 146 strains of yeast and bacteria that harbor some level of phytase activity. Again, that's the, the enzyme that breaks down phytic acid. That's a lot of strains, right? Mm -hmm. So these bacteria are well adept. They're well tooled up to break down these compounds that try to inhibit the bacteria from getting into that, into that seed to pull out the, the food that's inside it that we also want to eat. And so I, I would for sure um, learn how to, uh, well, let me get back to, to a, um, a, a little bit different thing. But so if I was bacteria and, and needed manganese and calcium and these other things that I found find in the, um, it's not the germ, right? No, it's the brain. It is in the germ for my metabolic activities. I would be sure to learn how to break down phytic acid in order to get to them. Yeah. So that's just kind of to sum up the point. Yeah, totally. Yeah, really. In summary, the phytase enzymes released by the yeast as the dough acidifies effectively pre-digest the flour. Yeah, and breaks down the phytic acid. Therefore, helping pre-digest that gluten also. Yeah, into amino acids and mm -hmm. constituent products. Okay. So and again, eat your sourdough. Eat your It'll sourdough. It'll help you... Uh, Reduce bloating and any digestive discomfort that you think you get from conventional bread. Yeah. And remember, Hopefully. like, mm -hmm. these flours have pretty high protein content, right? Mm -hmm. Like, yeah. I'm not sure what the percent protein of a steak is, but, like, these, these grains have actually pretty high protein. So mm -hmm. if you're looking for protein, you know, sourdough is a, is a great option. Okay. Um, so in, in, in 1990... Do you want to kind of get into the shelf life stability? Yeah, totally. Or yeah, I think that's all we really need to cover at this yeah. point in time around phytic acid. So let's talk a little bit more specifically about some of the uh, interesting things about back to the sourdough. So the shelf life stability, yeah. is that what you're going to get into? Mm -hmm. I was. Yeah. Do you want me to start? Yeah, go okay. for it. All right. So that same, again, these are great, the Italians, they love their bread. But uh, that same Italian team of researchers, uh, in between these two studies in 1998, they, they looked at how sourdough affects the shelf life of bread. And, and what they found, actually, compared to just yeasted bread, so that's not a naturally leavened bread, um, these lactobacillus species improve shelf life by delaying the staling of bread, but also actually this process called starch retrogradation. And uh, starch... Retrogradation. <laughs> Say um, that 10 times fast. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, it, it basically refers to kind of like the, the, the association or kind of the, the recrystallization of these compounds called polysaccharides that are in gelatinized starch. And so gelatinized starch is essentially like, you know, hydrated flour. It kind of gets gelatiny, right? Like the shaggy bread yeah, type thing. Yeah, yeah, It's got some texture to it. And, and this, uh, this process, starch retrogradation, it occurs when, when starch-based foods are either exposed to like freeze-thaw cycles. So you might have noticed that like with your quickly yeasted breads that you get, like Wonder Bread or whatever, if you pull it out of the freezer, it, it probably it kind of gets like, like crumbly, if you will. And so it can, um, this, um, this process can be affected by the freeze-thaw cycles of breads. But also when moisture kind of migrates through starchy foods, 
um, which impacts the textural, but also actually it even affects nutritional attributes of the food. Um, it can actually decrease starch digestibility in breads, which is really interesting. Uh, that was a paper by Park uh, et al. in 2009. Um, so yeah, it's just a really interesting concept. I, I've never heard of starch retrogradation, but intuitively like stale bread or like crumbly bread that you know loses its structure. Yeah, you can just like tell it's like maybe lost some of its moisture content. Something's going on where it's like it's not quite stale stale or dry but like the texture has just changed off. maybe like when you buy an old pastry mm-hmm. at a bakery because they sell them for multiple days <laughs> you like do. go to bite into it, and it kind of just like crumbles apart and you're like, hmm, yeah, I thought like this would be moist yeah it's kind of like sawdust in your mouth yeah. a little yeah yeah um yeah i mean that's about it uh as far as as far as that process goes yeah yeah but yeah, and it's it's just interesting, too, in thinking about the shelf life of sourdough bread. And we talked about that a bit earlier in that you should be looking for bread that does have a shelf life mm-hmm. because it is natural at the end of the day and mm-hmm. it doesn't have preservatives added. Um, but it's also interesting thinking about the concept that it's not going to mold super quickly because of that diverse culture in there. Mm-hmm. And so in sourdough bread making where you do have that wide variety of the different acids, all of those, they've been shown to be antifungal. Um, they have it's butyric. Butyric. Butyric acid, yeah. um, among others. Yeah. And all those help to inhibit the mold growth. Yeah. And we certainly see that in our bread. I mean, we push it at home. We'll keep a loaf of bread on the shelf for like uh, sometimes two weeks. And no I mean, we did, we had one loaf that started to get some mold spots. Gosh, I don't even know how old that one was, but that was the one that has a little bit of, um, of sugar, yeast, added to it yeast too. and yeah. olive oil added in. Yeah. So mm-hmm. yeah, usually our authentic sourdough bread starts to go a bit stale before mm-hmm. moldy and then it's perfect for breadcrumbs or croutons. And, and think about, think about what culture, <laughs> a culture is. Um, so it's this symbiotic relationship between various um, species of bacteria and fungi, which is across plant kingdoms. Like they're very disparate. They're very different. And they basically, they found this readily available food that they want to completely engulf their culture around and protect it from any outside invaders that do not form relationships with the constituent bacteria and fungi that are present in the sourdough culture. And so you know, like putting up moats and and having, you know, spears and guns like bacteria don't produce that, but they produce other compounds because they're also brilliant chemists. They produce mm-hmm. compounds that in, specifically inhibit cultures that are uh, like mold, various other cultures like mold um, from coming in and feeding on the food that they found. Yeah. Yeah. I like to think kind of like think in that way. Um, so you've, you know, is sourdough probiotic is, is kind of another, maybe a misnomer. Yeah. Yeah. I I think, and I think this is a a good final topic to touch on in this present conversation around, uh, the sourdough education we're wanting to provide, but yeah, sourdough, it is a fermented product. And so there is, I would say a myth or misnomer or misconception around what it is providing you and you know I actually wasn't certain until we did some research on this and it it is in fact a myth that sourdough bread is 
providing your body with probiotics. And what a probiotic is, is like there's bacteria and there's yeast or whatever that are in the food that then are you're consuming and then hopefully are colonating and living in your gastrointestinal yeah. tract. Yeah, it's what's going to stimulate the growth of the microorganisms well, isn't in your intestinal flora. No. Probiotics also? I thought probiotics were primarily like, you know, there's actual bacteria in the probiotic that you're consuming. Yeah, they're live microorganisms yeah. that contribute to the growth of the microorganisms in your gut. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, well, like us, we can't survive <laughs> t- extreme temperatures. And what's the temperature of a bread when you pull it out? Uh, between 190 to 200 degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah. Hot. Yeah. Hot. I wouldn't want to be, you literally, back, like most bacteria can't survive that, nor mm-hmm. yeasts. Yeah. So you, there are no live cultures once a sourdough bread is baked. Mm-hmm. Before there's plenty, but not yeah. once it's baked. Yeah. Actually, it's once that bread reaches an internal temperature of 140 degrees, that's when the yeast and bacteria that have been feeding away in there on the proteins and carbs of the flour are killed off. Mm-hmm. So 140 degrees. Don't eat your bread raw for the sake of the probiotics. So yeah, I, I mentioned prebiotics and probiotics and how they're different. And and what's what's a prebiotic again? So prebiotics are a type of fiber. Like you'll get it, you'll get prebiotics from fiber, but it's a type of fiber that our gut bacteria uses as a food source. They're not killed by high heat. So something containing fiber, even if it's cooked, you're still going to get prebiotics from it, unlike the probiotics, which are killed off after that 140 degree Fahrenheit temperature. And so when when bacteria in our guts feed on the prebiotics from the flour itself, they're releasing nutrients to our bodies. Mm -hmm. And so even in our flour that is not a whole wheat or whole grain flour, it still has a decent amount of fiber available. And that is what is giving those prebiotics to our bodies. So they kind of like work like a fertilizer for all those friendly little bacteria in our guts. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. But in in thinking about the probiotics and having those bacteria and yeast that are active in the fermentation of the bread initially what they're leaving behind and this is interesting to think about too because we mentioned this earlier talking about the crumb of the bread and these big holes that are in it it's like well where do those come from and if you think about it on the microscopic scale and all these little uh, bacteria and yeast that are feeding away in there when you're left with those large bubbles after your fermentation, that's actually the CO2 that had been produced by the yeast. The yeast within like it, within your micro mm-hmm. microbes in your, I was going to say soil, the microbes in your starter. <laughs> Similar microbes, but... Yeah. yeah, totally. And then the sour flavor that you get within your bread is... Um, from the lactic acid produced by the bacteria. Yeah. So or, the, or the acetobacter. Yeah. From the acetic acid, yes. which is sour. Yeah. 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 Totally. Yeah. Super fascinating stuff. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think uh, I think that kind of sums up what we hope to share today. And we always love when people 
challenge us with this topic or bring in their own questions or experiences. We especially love hearing people's success stories when they switch to uh, naturally fermented breads, especially organic. And so reach out to us if you have any stories you want to share, good or bad, or any other questions uh, that you'd like us to research or touch on in a little bit more depth. Yeah, and I guess to summarize the main points that we're trying to get it come across or get across right now is that bread isn't bad for you. I mean, that's I think that's one of the biggest ones. It's but bread that's produced with a recipe that does not increase the bioavailability of nutrients, that doesn't pre-digest the gluten that's in wheat, is actually might actually be bad for you yeah. or more harmful to you or, or just <laughs> at least not as good for you than yeah. sourdough breads. Yeah, and be harder on your digestive system. And if it's not made with certified organic flour, just don't even bother eating it. Yeah, yeah. It's you just absolutely should not be eating non-organic wheat because, well, we'll get into that. Tune in next time. Yeah, <laughs> we'll <laughs> Down get into the road. that soon enough. Thanks for listening, everyone. Please take a moment to subscribe to this podcast and share it with your friends and family. It really just takes a couple of seconds. You can also leave us a review. We appreciate all forms of feedback. It certainly helps us to keep our egos in check. And if you appreciate our work and want to help us succeed, please consider contributing financially. You can do this by visiting patreon.com backslash the sourdough. That's patreon.com backslash the sourdoe. You can also follow us on Instagram at sourdough.mt.